Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the general medicine literature, but in an environmentally friendly frenzy you've used up all your shiny BMJs as wrapping paper? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting, folks. The weather outside is frightful, but the medical literature is oh so delightful. Anyone else getting in the Christmas spirit? Just me? (laughs) Absolutely atrocious. Um, We've practiced that all week. (laughs) However, did I ever mention, um, John, that actually when I applied to respiratory medicine, the first time I replied, um, my only eligible like application point for research was a publication in the Medical Journal of Australia entitled Was the Night Before Ground Round? And it's like a poem. Um, and a quick nod Jesus. to Dr. Ellis up in Liverpool, who basically gave me that point for my application. So thanks for that. Thanks, Dr. Ellis, for sort of giving us that little anecdote as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Christmas is nearly upon us. But this isn't our Christmas special. That is yet to come, listeners. Today, we are going to smash through some of the excellent, new, and practice-changing articles which our elf-like researchers at Journal Spotting HQ have discovered. Yeah, that's right. And uh, before we get started, why don't we have a little update of what everyone's been up to over the last few weeks? What have you been doing, Alvin? You been busy? Hi, I'm Dr. Alvin Shrestha, and this has been a rather slow month. So like most of the country, I'm sure, um, I actually binged through the Queen's Gambit uh, just recently. And following on from that, I fancied myself as a bit of an aspiring chess champion. So I went on to chess.com and quickly proceeded to get absolutely <laughs> annihilated in every game I played. So yeah, that, that's what I've been up to. Bit of a slow month. They Mate, do I- really attractive in that yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I reckon that is the experience about 80% of people that have watched The Queen's Gambit. Yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> God, and yeah, Barney and Cammy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You guys been away. You guys have been busy. What's been going on? Well, um, probably, I, probably talking about my new coffee machine. I've been really busy trying to perfect <laughs> my latte skills. Still failing, but trying to, trying to. I think they might be referring to the fact that we had a baby, Barney. We did indeed. Although the coffee machine is also quite <laughs> Very exciting, I was saying. It's keeping us keeping us going through these dark, dark times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lovely. And where is the baby while we're recording this? Just out of curiosity. She is attached <laughs> to a boob as we speak. Oh, <laughs> hello! Finally, a hirons that can contribute something to this podcast. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> she may well contribute later on if she does. Apologies, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Well, um, oh yeah. So yeah, I'm, my name is Dr. Barnaby Hirons, respiratory registrar, co-host. And my name is Dr. Cammy Hirons, and I am a GP. There we go. All right, John. Um, uh, want to take us through what we are going to cover in this awesome episode today? For our first trial, this episode, journal spotting gave to me semaglutide for the liver. You know how is that? <laughs> <laughs> Does that work? Is that sh- that works really well? That really will you carry on, please? I'm definitely not doing that for Probably every study. You get to five gold rings. Yeah. <laughs> we're, so we're covering semaglutide for the liver. We're going to cover a big update on statins in the elderly. Uh, we're going to talk about cardiovascular polypills, stroke and bereavement, fluids and DKA, ulcerative colitis treatment, uh, vitamin D and asthma, and quite a bit more. So 
guys, let's get on with the literature review. And oh, actually, before we start, just a reminder, please rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. It really makes a difference. Or maybe if you think we're crap, you know, conveniently forget to rate us or just email us directly. Don't mind. Yeah, good advice. Good advice. <laughs> we are going to kick off proceedings with the journal spotting blockbusting article of the month. Slow clap. Slow clap, maybe. <laughs> slow clap. Um, for a change, it's not respiratory, but we are going to go hepatology. Hepatology? Not respiratory? You feeling all right? Anecdote alert. Oh, not <laughs> No anecdote. I, I think I've just digressed far enough already. So we're going to press straight on. Um, what I'm talking about is a placebo-controlled trial of subcutaneous semaglutide in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, otherwise known as NASH, is on the rise. It's um, essentially fatty liver disease, most commonly related to obesity and type 2 diabetes, which can lead to liver cirrhosis and all those lovely complications, including hepatocellular carcinoma, varices, death. And thanks to the obesity crisis, which is sweeping the world, we will see more and more. Most treatments are aimed at lifestyle changes and dealing with complications. But as we know, people are not good at losing weight. And if they do, they are terrible at keeping it off. There are no approved medical treatments. Yet, here comes semaglutide, a glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 receptor agonist. Usually used in type 2 diabetes, it helps glycemic control, weight loss, and has shown to have some cardiovascular benefits. But can it help in NASH? This randomized controlled trial collected 320 typical NASH patients with type 2 diabetes and obesity with varying levels of fibrosis at baseline. They treated and monitored for over 72 weeks and studied different doses of semaglutide against placebo. So I think we're all intrigued, Barney. Can you tell us how this study's gained its glitzy title of Journal Spotting's Blockbuster of the Month? Yeah, sure. Well, look, all semaglutide doses showed a potential improvement in NASH with no worsening of fibrosis. This was greatest at the higher dose, which achieved an impressive 60% reduction in NASH. In the placebo group, there was actually a reduction of 17% as well, um, but the difference was still highly significant. So pretty impressive. Um, but did it make any difference to those who already had established fibrosis? Yeah, yeah good question, Alvin. I mean, uh, there was an improvement in the stage of fibrosis in 43% um, of patients who were on the highest dose. However, that was compared to 33% in the placebo group. Now, this made it not statistically significant and came as a bit of a surprise to the authors, as usually a NASH reduction does correspond to a fibrosis reduction. Possibly this is related to the short duration of the study, but it's a bit unclear why. Okay, okay, but it all still sounds very beneficial. Um, but is it a safe drug? Yeah, well, it, it's fairly well tolerated overall. But this study did highlight that there was quite a high incidence of the known side effects, which are mainly include GI upsets, but otherwise pretty safe. So Barney, what's your blockbuster take-home message? Well, uh, NASH is on the rise and semaglutide is the first treatment which has shown a significant improvement in this potentially fatal disease. It's not perfect, but it works. Coming to a cirrhotic obese patient near you soon. So watch out for it. Thanks, Barney. That is a blockbuster indeed. 
uh, maybe getting us into a little Christmas spirit. Um, I'm trying to make this episode our Christmas episode. It's obviously not going to be, but <laughs> I don't know why I'm trying. Cammy, um, I think you have some slightly more depressing articles from this month. Should we get those out of the way? Why not? <laughs> yes, I have the very happy, happy um, article of death of a partner and risks of ischemic stroke and interest cerebral hemorrhage, a nationwide Danish-matched cohort study from the JHHA. So stress has been reported to trigger stroke and the death of a loved one is a, quote, potentially extremely stressful experience, unquote, just like to draw your attention to the author's use of potentially stressful here. Um, Anyway, moving on. Previous studies yielded conflicting findings on whether bereavement is associated with stroke risk, possibly because of insufficient distinction between ischemic stroke and intracerebral hemorrhage. So this study set out to look at exactly this. The study cohort included all Danish individuals whose partners died between 2002 and 2016, and a reference group of cohabiting individuals matched one to two on sex, age, and calendar time, and they were followed over a five-year period. So during the study, over 270,000 individuals experienced partner bereavement, of whom 7,684 had an ischemic stroke within the subsequent five years, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.11 when compared with non-bereaved cohort. And 1,139 experienced the intracerebral hemorrhage with a hazard ratio of 1.13. So for intracerebral hemorrhage, the association tended to be stronger within the initial 30 days after the partner's death, especially in women. In absolute numbers, the cumulative incidence of ischemic stroke at 30 days was 0.73 per thousand in bereaved individuals versus 0.63 in the control. And the corresponding figures for intracerebral hemorrhage were 0.13 versus 0.08. So whilst the absolute risk was small, there was still a clear and significant association, which was otherwise unexplained. Gosh, so recent death of a partner and a higher risk of ischemic and intracerebral hemorrhage. That's, gosh, that's interesting, Cammy. Any thoughts on how the information might be relevant in our current pandemic? I can see some links. Yeah, well, it seems wholly relevant with all the deaths that we've seen from COVID in 2020. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people experiencing grief, and especially in our older population. Will there be an increase in the amount of strokes that we see because of this, and should we be more aware of the increased risk? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out, isn't it, actually? And um, and look at the figures afterwards. Watch this space in a couple of years, listeners. Let's um, move away from these these slightly sad topics. And Alvin, anything to uh, brighten up our literature review? Maybe. So I've got polypill with or without aspirin in persons with cardiovascular disease, published in the New England Journal of Medicine last month. So this was a a randomized controlled trial of the effects of a polypill, which is a tablet that has multiple antihypertensives and a statin. They compared this to a placebo with and without aspirin. So when compared with placebo, they did find that there was a reduction in their primary outcome of major cardiovascular events and arterial revascularization with a hazard ratio of 0.79. However, the confidence interval did go from 0.63 to 1.0, so it did include unity. And similarly, the death from cardiovascular causes was also reduced with a hazard ratio again of 0.79 and confidence intervals that stretched from 0.61 again to 1.01. So just falling outside traditional statistical significance. In terms of side effects, more patients actually stopped the trial in the polypill group than the placebo group 
due to side effects, including dizziness and cough. Now, when looking at the head-to-head of polypill with aspirin versus placebo, they did actually find an even more impressive reduction in the primary outcome with a hazard ratio of 0.69. And this had a confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.97. So this was statistically significant. And interestingly, the dropouts from the side effect of bleeding were actually pretty similar in both arms. So there we have it. Polypill might be beneficial in reducing cardiovascular events and even more so when combined with aspirin. But there were high rates of intolerable side effects for many patients. So personally, I'm not that convinced. Yeah, I'm not sure either, really. Actually, I was kind of, I was hoping to see some evidence that we could just take one pill and all live forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But actually, those, those confidence intervals are not particularly convincing with the side effect profile as well. So yeah, great. Okay, well, thanks, Alvin. That's really interesting. And it brings us actually quite nicely up to our big update of the month. And we're, we're going to try and make sure we, we update you guys on one key topic per month if we can. And this one has received a lot of attention in the literature. This month, it's the drug that one day might be in our drinking water. John, what's new with statins? Yeah, I'm going to steal uh, what typically would be Alvin's thunder here and talk about statin use in the elderly. Try not to get too jealous as I <laughs> talk about this, Alvin. Uh, so lowering LDL cholesterol for the prim- primary prevention of myocardial infarction and cardiovascular disease in patients over 70 is kind of debated and not really borne out fully in the evidence. This is because most of the evidence is based on decade-old cohort studies that suggest there's not really any benefit to lowering LDL in the over 70s. And actually, there are quite a lot of guidelines around the world that do not give a strong recommendation for statin therapy in patients over 75 years of age. Alvin, so far, am I saying all the right things? I think you are. Carry on. Nice. The NICE guidelines actually are the ones that say 84 years of age is the cutoff for recommending statins, basically. But all the rest, no strong recommendation in the over 75s. So we probably need to revisit this idea because, surprise, surprise, people around the world are living longer and they're healthier. And a few papers published in The Lancet this month help us settle this debate. The first is a large cohort study from the Copenhagen General Population Study. This Danish trial is a welcome piece of scientific news from Denmark, as the last time they were in the headlines was for the genocide of 7 million minks. (laughs) 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 Slight digression, John, but uh, potentially stick to the uh, the statins first. Yeah, sorry. So this is a prospective cohort study. It took 91,000 individuals not on a statin and didn't have cardiovascular disease between the ages of 20 to 100 years. And they followed them up for about seven and a half years. And they wanted to see who got an MI and who got atherosclerotic heart disease. And so the findings showed that raised LDL cholesterol was associated with an increased absolute risk of MI and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in those aged 70 years or older. A rise in LDL of one millimole was associated with a several fold greater absolute risk for MI in those over 70 compared to those from 29 to 60. So this is actually different to what the previous cohort studies have shown. The number needed to treat to prevent one MI in five years was 80 for those aged 80 to 100, easy to remember, 145 for those aged 70 to 79, and it gets bigger the, the more you sort of lower the age, basically. So this slightly debunks the myth that there's no benefit to lowering LDL in the elderly. Yeah, that's bang on Cami. So to really dispel this mink, as the saying goes in Dutch, in the same edition of The Lancet, they published a meta-analysis that builds on these findings. They included only articles published from 2015 
and had 21,000 patients aged 75 or older on some form of lipid-lowering therapy. There was an unequivocal risk reduction in the risk of major vascular events in patients over the age of 75 if on LDL-lowering therapy. So a doubleheader in The Lancet advising us that statins and other LDL-lowering therapies are important for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in the elderly. Don't cross them off the chart on your Jerry's Ward round just yet. Well, that's handy, John. Um, I hear that you've also spotted another statin article this month. Yep, we're all stranded on Staten Island. Uh, <laughs> that's a New York-based pun, if anyone has been to New York. Uh, this next paper is in the New England Journal, um, and it's called the N of 1 trial of a statin, placebo, or no treatment to assess side effects. This is based around the nocebo effect. We know that statins are often discontinued because of side effects, and there is a lot of controversy about this. Just before you go on, remind us what the nocebo effect is. Yeah, so that's when a harmless intervention, so for example, a pill with no active substance, causes harm that is perceived by the patient as a side effect or worsens a condition when actually it's not really having any effect. That's nocebo. So this trial recruited 60 participants who had previously stopped statins due to side effects. And then over the course of a year, each patient took a different treatment for a month at a time, either a statin, placebo, or no treatment at all. They had to report how intense the adverse effects were on a scale every single day. Um, what's this N of one thing? Yeah, so this is what's quite cool about this trial is that um, the results of symptoms for each treatment are directly compared to the same patient. So it's trying to account for the subjectivity of symptom reporting and how hard it can be to measure these in a standardized way. So you're comparing one patient's symptoms with the same patient's report of symptoms at, an, at a different time. So the results are really interesting. The mean symptom intensity when patients were on no treatment was eight. For placebo, the mean symptom intensity was 15.4. And for statins, it was 16.3. And that was not a significant difference. So side effects were very similar in those on treatment with statins and those with placebo. The authors suggest that the nocebo effect is therefore responsible for a very high proportion, about 90% of the adverse symptoms reported on statins. It's a small trial, but it's a clever design. It definitely gives some really valuable insight into reported side effects of statins. And it highlights the nocebo effect really well. And I think it might make us think a bit more about how we could communicate this with our patients. You know, half the patients in this study actually, after participating and seeing the results, resume taking statins. So I think as clinicians, it could be good to be mindful of sort of the power si powerful psychological effects of these drugs and um, that the nocebo effect may potentially be present. That's great. Yeah, thanks, John. I think what, what I've basically gleaned for that is actually statins often can be beneficial in the elderly. And actually, we should pretty much just ignore their muscle pains. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm pretty sure that's what you said. And I, I'll, take that, I'll take that away from that. That's good. Um, no, but thank you, John. Thanks for delving into that sort of a collection of articles. That's really good. And I've also got a study that is going to dispel a few uh, minks as Danes and, well, mainly John would say. Um, so this is a fluid update. I'm sure many of our listeners, if not all of you, will fondly remember my rant slash professional explanation of why we should be using balanced crystalloids like Hartman's instead of saline and sepsis. Basically, balanced crystalloids are better. In fact, it was our very first episode in January. Oh, how we've grown. Yeah, older and still banging on about the same bag of fluids. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway... John, thank you. JAMA recently published a subgroup analysis from two large older trials, SALT ED and SMART trials, which were from 2016 and 2017. In this one, 
they looked at 172 adults with DKA. They compared the use of balanced crystalloids, such as plasmolite or Hartmann's, to normal saline when used for volume expansion. Other parts of the DKA management were as protocol because, as we all know, you can't add potassium to things like Hartmann's. The median amount of fluid we used was about 4.5 litres. Headlines from this. Number one, the time to DKA resolution was 13 hours in the balanced crystalloid group and 17 hours in the saline group, giving an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.68. The time to IV insulin cessation was about 10 hours with balanced crystalloids compared to 13 hours compared to 13 and a half hours with saline. Now, I think there are pretty big differences and can make quite a big difference to our patients. The article does not cover things like mortality benefits, but it does enough to show us that in DKA, you can forget about the arguments such as, oh, but Harmons has lactate in it, and use balanced crystalloids for volume expansion. Much of this may be related to the issues with saline causing a metabolic acidosis, but you can uh, listen back to episode one to get more on this. I think this will change my practice. If I dare go against the diabetes nurses and the DKA protocols in our hospitals. Mate, don't you dare. I think DK is going to be the first condition that's going to be entirely managed by robots and we're finally all replaced. Oh, that would make life a lot easier. But anyway, yeah, that is true. (laughs) Not if this study has anything to do with it. All right, Alvin, uh, back to the Jerry's update, please. What's been happening in November? Okay, so one of the trendy areas of interest in geriatrics is sarcopenia. So I'll now be discussing Age and Aging's paper called Relationship Between Sarcopenia and Orthostatic Hypertension. Right, sarcopenia. So they haven't mm. got much of it. And sarco, I, I think, is, is muscle. Is that... Not bad, but that's pretty Uh-oh. good. Yeah. That's a bit that, more that'll do. <laughs> um, yeah, so sarcopenia can be thought of as a geriatric syndrome of muscle failure, basically. And it's defined as uh, a low muscle strength with low muscle quantity. And when you have that combined with low physical performance, you get severe sarcopenia. This was a single center study with over 500 older adults attending an outpatient geriatric clinic in Turkey. And they all received a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which included various bedside assessments for cognition and mobility. The researchers found that only 40% of the patients were what you'd call robust. The rest had some form of sarcopenia, so that's 60%. They then analysed the differences between these subgroups. In terms of their primary aim, they did find an association between orthostatic hypotension, which was more frequent in the severe sarcopenia group compared to the robust group and other subgroups of sarcopenia. The authors suggest physiologically that this might be due to a reduction in in, uh, venous return from the muscle involvements in the legs as a sort of potential plausible explanation. Yeah, it sounds, sounds, yeah, it does sound potentially plausible. Um, what can we take away from this in our you know, everyday clinical practice, do you think? So firstly, sarcopenia appears to be quite common, so we should probably be assessing for it more often. And given this, uh, this study's findings that sarcopenia is indeed associated with orthostatic hypertension, I think we need to be doing postural blood pressures much more frequently, uh, especially in patients that, you know, that look like they might fit the sarcopenia phenotype. And I think also vice versa. So when we see an unexplained postural drop, maybe look for sarcopenia. This way we might be able to pick up more cases and maybe even intervene earlier. 
That's great, Alvin. But if you were on the last Jerry's Ward that I worked on and you suggested we should be doing more lying and standing blood pressures, <laughs> the patients would literally be stood up the whole day. <laughs> but that's awesome. I think it's a, a really valuable lesson and definitely one that we can look out for. Um, Cammy, uh, you're about to teach me my second word of the day. So I learned sarcopenia about two minutes ago. Uh, now you're going to tell us what indigo naturalis is. What's, what's all that about? Let me tell you what it is. It is a blue pigment extracted from Assam indigo and some other plants. So traditionally, it's been used as an anti-inflammatory in Chinese herbal medicine. It's also been shown to be highly effective for ulcerative colitis treatment in several studies. And so this double-blinded multi-centre study aimed to confirm the efficacy and safety of short-term administration for UC. So this is a Japanese trial uh, where they used 46 patients with mild to moderate UC. And this was based on a, I'm going to say this wrong, lich tiger or lich tiger score something about licking tigers is what i've got from that yeah, yeah. Good. yeah. the images in my mind anyway, yeah. who were intolerant of or refractory to existing treatments and they randomized them to receive either 500 milligrams twice a day of indigo naturalis or placebo in addition to their usual medication and that was for two weeks so what is this licking tiger score can you tell us more? I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm just going to call it Lick Tiger now. So to clarify, Lick Tiger Index is a scoring system used to diagnose and follow up um, acute severe colitis. So a score okay. of over 10 defines acute severe colitis and response to medical treatment is defined by a score of less than 10 on two days consecutively or a decrease of at least three points when compared to your initial score. So at baseline, the Indigo Naturalis group had a higher average Lick Tiger index score. So that was 9.04 versus the 7.47. And after administration, the mean Lick Tiger index in the intervention group had significantly improved with a p-value of 0.01 compared to the placebo group, which showed no change. There was also a decline in hemoglobin in the placebo group, so not a good outcome, and, and an improvement in albumin in the indigo naturalis group. Also, on a side note, LFTs were significantly elevated in the indigo naturalis group, but they did all remain within the normal limits. Follow-up at 24 weeks showed no adverse events. While this study showed significant improvement on a symptomatic scale after two weeks of indigo naturalis administration, longer trials are needed to study its efficacy and safety, and ideally with endoscopic evaluation of disease remission. So is indigo naturalis something we can prescribe now, Cami? Well, after reading this, I immediately looked it up in the BNF and unfortunately, mm. no, but it is something you can buy online. So bearing that in mind, um, to me, it seems like a no brainer or something that we should be thinking about as it's lower cost and reduced side effect from the medications, the expensive and hefty medications that patients are already on. Yeah, also, I suppose for people who aren't keen on, you know, usual therapies and yeah. they don't want to go on the monoclonal antibodies and things like that, this is um, nice, good to have other options. Excellent. Going to want to see bigger trials for those LFTs, though, just before yeah, we yeah. get too excited. Well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm excited, John. I'm excited. Two weeks, that's it. Two weeks and 46 patients, I'm sold. Patients <laughs> sold, so. John, you seem uh, quite interested in cardiology this month. Is there some sort of pattern emerging here yeah you're not wrong bonnie my reading may be being dictated by some impending interviews who knows bit of selection bias uh it's been a good year for heart failure therapies though with 
the arrival of SGLT2 inhibitors, um, but there's still an ongoing hunt for a therapy that enhances systolic function to improve outcomes for heart failure. That's heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So of all the drugs we have, we don't have a drug that successfully targets inotropy. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that, largely to do with side effects, but it's interesting to think that all the other treatments that have a mortality benefit don't target this. Um, but there's hope now. We've got, I'm gonna, probably going to say this wrong, omicamtiv mercabil. I think that's how you say it. Uh, but basically, this compound is a cardiac myosin activator. It acts directly on sarcomeres to improve their function and increase the power stroke at the start of systole. And what's a sarcomere, I hear you ask, Barney? I didn't, I didn't ask that, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was actually more interested in, uh, hey, digoxin is, has anotropic effects. So why don't we just use that? <laughs> but anyway, that's another discussion. Um, <laughs> True. True. No mortality benefit. No, oh, very good. It sounds like you are uh, go going on to a bit of a cardiac physiology lecture here. Yeah, you're right, Bonnie. I will hold off talking about the sarcomere for a later date. And I don't want you to be able to get your own back with a whole episode on sleep apnea, so I'll leave it there. Basically, there's a new heart failure drug that improves systolic function in a way you would remember if we were all sat in a first-year medical school lecture. Published in the New England Journal this month, it's an RCT that enrolled 8,000 patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction of 35%. The trial name, Galactic Heart Failure. Pretty cool. The oh, intervention uh, group, so the patients that got this new drug, Omicamtiv Macabil, had an 8% lower relative risk of the composite outcome of heart failure event or death from a cardiovascular cause compared to the control group. Uh, this was a, with a median follow-up of 21.8 days. So quite a modest effect. Uh, but significant and evidence nonetheless of an effect on mortality. Um, some of the secondary outcomes they looked at, uh, no difference in symptom score, but a 10% lower pro-BNP than in the placebo group. And reassuringly, this positive inotropic drug actually did not cause any more complications than the placebo. Okay, well, there's some benefit there, but I mean, you sound like you're not, not too sure if this drug is actually going to take off. I don't think it's going to live up to the trial's name. I certainly struggle to keep track of the number of heart failure drugs. And for patients, the pill burden is pretty high. I think they average about eight drugs when they're actually stable with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And that's before you consider any comorbidities. So before we add in more pharmacology, I think we have to think a little bit more carefully and not sure based on this trial that this drug is going to fly off the pharmacy shelves. But I would love to get the opinion of any cardiologist out there that wants to weigh in because I'm not one. Sounds good. Well, <laughs> well, if you're going to stick to cardio, John, I am uh, just going to go back to my roots and dish out a bit of respiratory, just for a change. <laughs> just for a change. I'm going to look once again at vitamin D. This is the D-rated vitamin, which medics can't help researching again and again. This article from the thorax once again looks at vitamin D in asthma. Now, this isn't a new thing. A 2016 Cochrane review decided that vitamin D supplementation reduced the risk of severe asthma exacerbations, but did not appear to improve quality of life. However, there weren't many trials, and it was not clear if, on, if it only made a difference if the wheezy patient was vitamin D deficient or not. This month's study included 112 patients with confirmed asthma and a low vitamin D level less than 30 nanograms per milliliter. They randomized them to either weekly vitamin D or not, and monitored over six months. This was a robust blinded RCT, albeit with quite small numbers and a relatively short follow-up, but they got the results they were looking for. The asthma control test score significantly increased by three points in the treatment group and slightly decreased in the control group. And for the non-respiratory lot out there, 
including me, what is the asthma control test, Barry? Yeah, fair enough. The, the asthma control test, or ACT, is a series of questions rated out of five, gives you a maximum score of 25. A higher score indicates better control. So three points is actually a fairly big deal. Okay. The treatment group also showed a significantly improved quality of life when compared to the non-treatment group. So this study doesn't exactly answer if vitamin D works if there is no deficiency. But in answer to the Cochrane review, there is now clear evidence that there is improvement in day-to-day -day symptoms of asthma and quality of life if we treat vitamin D deficiency. But does that just mean that people generally feel better when they aren't vitamin D deficient? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's going to play a role here. If someone's vitamin D deficient and feeling a bit rubbish, it gives some, it's going to improve it. But that wouldn't really explain the AC2 score improvement, which I think is quite key. So do you think it will change your practice? In a way, yes. I mean, I often suggest that people should take supplements over winter, especially if they have asthma. But I'm actually going to be a bit more proactive and test my asthmatic patients for vitamin D, as it's an easy and safe issue to fix and appears to have some significant benefits. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Um, back to you, Alvin. Anticholinergics, I think. Yeah, so let's start with a quick pop quiz, guys. Can anyone name me any anticholinergic drugs? Uh, amitriptyline. Very good. That has an anticholinergic burden score of three. Ooh, really? Ooh. <laughs> uh, oxybutynin. Yep, another classic. Again, a score of three. Oh, same piece. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about something like cimetidine? Equally anticholinergic at a score of three, would you believe? And even morphine has a score of one. So what I'm trying to get at is we now know lots of drugs actually have anticholinergic properties that might not seem obvious. And it's becoming quite well established that these anticholinergic drugs are generally associated with badness. For example, delirium and even death. Um, and what about the long-term cognition? Well, I've got for you a systematic review published in Age and Aging called Anticholinergic Drugs and Incident Dementia. This reviewed 26 studies and included over 600,000 participants with a median duration of 73 months. The meta-analysis they did did find a significant association between anticholinergic drug use and a new diagnosis of dementia. The odds ratio was 1.5 in those using the offending drugs for a year, and this was statistically significant. So what does it mean for clinical practice? Should we be stopping these anticholinergic drugs? Very good question, but I don't think necessarily uh, we should be stopping them. Not hastily, anyway. So the authors warned that the review that they wrote did include multiple studies that were at risk of bias. Many of the studies were not randomised and so susceptible to confounding. So we can't really infer causality from this study. So I think the authors, uh, I think rightly, uh, conclude that the evidence just isn't strong enough to warrant aggressive deprescribing but that we need to be aware of these negative outcomes. What I will say though, I think is next time you clerk in a patient, maybe with polypharmacy or that's just generally old. Um, yeah. Sarcopenia, <laughs> do you think, ideally. sorry? With sarcopenia, ideally. Yeah. <laughs> do you think about calculating their anticholinergic burden? And you can do this on a website that's acbcalc.com and, have a real hard think about the risk benefit for that patient. 
That's great. That's, I mean, thank you. Yeah, that's a nice yeah. plug as well. I like that. I think that's really interesting. We do have to be careful about chopping and changing. And sometimes it is a matter of, um, you know, going back to other specialties, for example, psychiatry and having that discussion with them as well. Yeah. Thanks. I think that was really cool. Barney, we are getting to the tail end of our marathon of evidence-based medicine. Uh, it's that time where we go and drift off into anything kind of relatively, relatively irrelevant, relevant article. Yeah. I, I said you. it wrong. Thanks for that very uh, articulate um, <laughs> introduction. Um, I've actually got another case study for you guys. Um, after the success of the last one from the New England Journal of Medicine, I've got one which was... Uh, described in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So, bear with me, all right? You've got a 26-year-old prison inmate with borderline personality disorder, uh, comes into ED with recent onset severe abdominal pain. He gets an ECG on admission, which shows ST elevation in his anterior and inferior leads. What investigations are you gonna do? Troponin. All right, blood's gone, blood's appending, good, troponin. What else <laughs> can you do? And ask if he's taken... Chest x-ray, yeah, that's what I wanted. Has he taken any cocaine? Oh, good question. He hasn't taken any cocaine as far as we can tell. Um, but he gets a chest x-ray. And this shows a metallic cylindrical object stuck in his esophagus. Trop comes back negative. But the pain only started an hour ago, so we don't really know if that's going to arrive. So you've got a choice now. You're going to go cath lab or endoscopy for this patient? Endoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> so metallic cylindrical object in the esophagus, is that what you said? Yeah. 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 So I think they're hard to fish out with an angiogram. He's <laughs> <laughs> got the elevation, mate, and, and pain. And there's only the first drop. Yeah. Anyway, you're absolutely right. Yeah, look, get gastro involved. Down they went in this gentleman, and they used their little snare toy, and they fished out one shiny, and they you know, made it quite specific, a Duracell Plus. AA battery. The ST elevation vanished and the pain resolved. So apparently this has actually been recorded in previous cases um, and case studies. But as the authors really quite proudly state, this is the very first time a case has been reported after ingestion of just one battery. Bravo, bravo. It was Duracell Plus does that make a difference? I think it was. I think it was that plus, <laughs> which yeah. those ECG sort of transmissions give the ST elevation. So, folks, sorry, this is really practice changing. Because next time that 75-year-old smoking, obese diabetic comes in with crushing central chest pain radiating down their arm and neck, make sure you check they haven't started a fancy new battery diet before piling on the aspirin mm. and, you know, calling the cath lab, all right? Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And and it goes to goes to show that you just like always get the chest X-ray. You know when you try and get referred something and there's no chest X-ray, you're like, no, no, there might be a battery there. <laughs> That's a good chest X-ray. Not just any battery. That might be a Duracell Plus. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know that can cause havoc with the cardiac, you know, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, there we go. That's a short and sweet little case study for you, folks. To finish off proceedings, I think we're gonna. Instead of going through all the articles, should we just get people's key practice changing points they got from tonight's episode? What do you think? Yeah. Alvin, do you want to? Sounds good. Alvin, you got something for us? Anything you, you think was most practice changing which we've talked about? Orthostatic hypertension is associated with sarcopenia. So get testing those blood pressures. Fair enough. 
John, what you got? What's what your, what you gonna, what's going to change your career for the better? Yeah, well, <laughs> depends what will get me the cardio interview. Uh, the statin stuff I thought was interesting. Uh, statins in the over 75s. But actually, I think, Alvin, your study about um, anticholinergic burden and risk of dementia is really interesting. Loads of patients in that meta-analysis, like something we definitely don't think enough about. So I think you've got my vote this evening. I thought that was really good. I think isn't even warfarin anticholinergic. It gets there's loads of drugs mm. on that scoring system. Mm. It's really quite impressive. So apart from um, making sure that my clear SD elevation hasn't swallowed a battery, um, I actually think the statins is you know that's going to be my thing for this episode. I often sort of spout that actually in these elderly patients we should be st- stopping statins or at least thinking about it. So I think that possibly is going to change my practice, John. Yeah, and just the thing about statins, which I don't think I clarified enough. Uh, sorry, I'm ruining the flow here, but it's primary prevention is the studies. It's not, specific, you know, it's not secondary prevention. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I boringly think as a GP, the statin one is probably my favourite as well. But I do like my one, I must say, on Indigo Naturalis, because <laughs> I do like and alternative therapies. <laughs> Very good. Nice. Oh, oh wonderful folks it's been a it's been a roller coaster of a ride um and loads of fantastic articles um thanks so much for your hard work thanks for having thanks you thanks a lot see ya see you later You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Today, we were joined by the awesome Dr. Cammy Hirons and Dr. Alvin Trester. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes to our logo lady, Natalia, graphics man Costa, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience and the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.